You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. With me today is Anita Novak, an empathy expert, award-winning educator, international speaker, author, and certified coach. As a coach, she advises wealthy families to wield their philanthropy for social good. But that's not all. Not only has she devoted her career to teaching and mentoring the next generation of changemakers, she's also a Reiki practitioner with a deep understanding of embodied, non-dualistic healing. After more than two decades of social impact work, this is what she knows for sure. We are at a defining moment in human history that calls for empathy at scale. Anita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you're here because empathy is something that we know to be important. We hear about it in conversations about leadership and communication and emotional intelligence. But before diving deeper into the subject of empathy, I'd like to know what it means to you and not in the textbook definition, but like, what does it actually feel like in practice for you? Yeah, recognizing that we share a common humanity Mm -hmm. and that even though we walk around with entirely different lived experiences, we're all born and we all pass on. And we know heartbreak and we know love and we know joy and we know sorrow and everything else in between. We share all of those things. And um, empathy is for me just the knowing that... Uh, that somebody else is experiencing something that I can relate to, may not have a perfect understanding of, but um, you know that we, I can provide some comfort and vice versa. Hmm. I have a lot of friends who identify as empaths and they seem to have a really hard time coping with just the breadth of emotions that are constantly being expressed. Is that something that you struggle with in kind of taking on other people's emotions? Um, personally, no. And I think the reason for that is that, um, that kind of empathy is affective empathy. So I don't want to get too much bogged down into the science of it, but empathy is really made of two different phenomena, affective empathy and cognitive empathy. So when somebody describes themselves as an empath, they typically are reacting to affective empathy, which is something that they feel physically in their body. Um, in response to stimulus, and it happens very naturally, spontaneously. Um, a lot of it has to do with our mirror neuron um, network. And so they might walk into a space and sense the energy of somebody in mourning or somebody who's feeling high anxiety. And uh, if you're constantly being aroused by other people's, um, you know, the, what they're feeling in a space, then you, you, you could end up feeling over aroused and, and that could lead to burnout and compassion fatigue. Mm. The other part of empathy is cognitive empathy, which is the perspective taking, the ability that our brain has with you know, our neocortex to imagine what somebody else is experiencing. And so that's putting yourself into someone else's circumstances. Like you know, when you read fiction, for example, a good novel, and so the toll is different. So it's not as taxing on, on your body psychically and physically. That's so interesting. I had never heard of the kind of the two sides of empathy. And it, it makes sense because 
I, you know, of those friends that I do have who really feel it on like, you know, in their bones, I, I don't, I don't feel it quite the same. And I do resonate as an empathic person. And so it, it makes me feel a little better <laughs> that mm-hmm. I'm probably more just on the cognitive side. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And in your upcoming book, you explain how your travels have actually played a huge role in your journey to understanding people and really learning to empathize with them. Is there a trip in particular or a defining moment in your life that made you think empathy is something I really need to explore deeper? Yeah, I mean, I've traveled probably to over 65, going on 70 countries at this point. And, you know, I've taken my fair share of vacations, but my travel has been a lot of, you know, like solo travel into developing nations and in Asia and, and Latin America, South America, a little bit of Africa. The defining trip actually happened in Rwanda. Um, I was, um, I went with my sister for a summer and we were, we had done some grassroots fundraising. So maybe like, I don't know, five or $10,000 to help an organization uh, called Tuba Humorize. They still exist. And um, it was founded by a woman, a, a survivor of the Rwandan genocide uh, who has uh, three children that survived. She lost her husband. She remarried a man who lost his entire family, his wife and five children. And um, she was trying to to provide support to to women who had survived the genocide. A lot of them had been raped. Uh, most of them lived in in a fair bit of poverty. Some had um, medical illnesses, including HIV AIDS. And so the goal of the organization is to provide trauma counseling and like healing circles, but also um, some some skill building. And they were launching a microfinance project. So when my sister and I went there in 2008, we did some fundraising to help them buy, I think, something like 10 sewing machines and to help their 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 microfinance program. And we were there to do a bit of a needs assessment to, to help them think of a strategic long-term st- sustainability plan and maybe help them like, you know, do some outreach and some future fundraising. So it was quite like practical nonprofit work. And uh, the experience of being, you know, there's 300 women that were part of that nonprofit collective and they would meet, they divided the group into four groups. So they would meet once a week. And so there would be on average about 30 or thereabouts women coming in for like sessions where they would sing songs and they would tell stories. And, you know, some of it was about the genocide still, like there was still a lot of uh, PTSD, as you can imagine, but some of it was just about day-to-day living in the, in the now. And I was stunned by... Um, the resilience that they had, the faith in the future that they had, despite having very little. Um, It was, you know, uh, the hardest part for me, I think, was just knowing I was going home, like knowing that I would be leaving the circumstances where uh, I I saw a breathtaking amount of, of, of layer upon layer upon layer of, of, of uh, difficulty and trauma and knowing that I'd be leaving and carrying on with my life. Mm. And I remember the second to last night, I was invited by, there was a a trained therapist who ran the healing circle. She was um, a social worker. And we were invited, my sister and I, to her house for dinner. And uh, I remember, you know, a very, very modest home, 
um, you know, a wood table with some chairs, very little furniture. Um, she brought out two little Coke bottles and gave one to me and one to my sister. And we spread out the Coke uh, across the table to all the family members because she had her own two children who had survived the genocide and she had adopted, I think, three orphan children. Wow. And um, yeah, we spread the Coke around the table and it was like the biggest birthday party had exploded in real time because none of them had ever tasted Coke before. Mm. And I just had this like sinking feeling like, oh my goodness, you know, they, they're just so grateful for so little and yet I'm going to go home and I could turn on the tap and, you know, Coke could just run right through the tap. And I, I had like a physical sensation the whole dinner of just feeling like Coke as shards of glass down my throat. I got home after the meal because I don't, you know, I don't know where she got the money to buy the food that she put out on a spread for us. Um, to be honest, like certainly not on her salary. I don't know how it all magically appeared. And she was just appreciating us. And it was so hard to kind of just take that in, soak in appreciation for us. Um, and I got home, I got back to where we were staying and just like had a complete and utter meltdown. Like I just, I couldn't fathom um, going back home. And, and, you know, I had wanted, like that trip was meant to be sort of the on-ramp for me to do some humanitarian work on the mm -hmm. front lines. And that was the trip where I was like, wow, I just, I don't actually have the resilience and the inner fortitude to do that. What am I going to do now? And um, it was just through like a big breakdown, like in a really real kind of, you know, breaking open more than breaking down to realize, okay, I'm, what am I going to do? And, and that's when I turned to education as my, as my um, offering to the world to make the world a better place. I couldn't be on the front lines, but I could maybe uh, inspire some young people to think about careers of social change. Wow. And when you went into this kind of next chapter, did you go in with the intention of learning more to inspire and educate, or did you go in with the intention to become an expert in the field as you have become? Huh. That's another um, little anecdote that I couldn't have predicted would happen in my life. Like when I, I came back from Singapore where I'd done my master's degree in media and communication studies, I was really interested in how young people learned about the world through their very mediated culture. And that was long before social media. So this was like in the 2000, you know, 1999 to 2001 when I did my my master's. Uh, so I came back and I decided to embark on a PhD in 2004. And I was set on studying media literacy. So teaching literacy skills, media literacy skills to young people so that they can navigate a world that, you know, is quite toxic, right? Everything's about you're not good enough. That's why you must buy this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the news also, you know, tell stories, you know, how many men are featured through a newspaper on any given day versus women. So like just, you know, kind of unpacking what norms and stories are being told um, uh, through the media, especially advertising. And somewhere along the lines, uh, three years into my degree, I'd finished my coursework, I had done my comprehensive exams, and I was invited um, uh, to, to, to take on a really exciting new job. I'd been moonlighting through my PhD and I, I accepted the job and I told my thesis advisor that I was going to take a year off and he was really not happy about that. So it wasn't until like six months into my sabbatical that he asked me to come into a meeting with him and said, so what's new? And I was telling him about this trip to Rwanda that I was taking and he 
told me like it was like a 20 minute meeting. And after I told him what we were going to do um, in Kigali, he said, look, Anita he goes like, you're all lit up uh, telling me about this trip you're going to take. And that's the kind of fire you need to have in your belly if you're going to finish your PhD. Like most students or most uh, PhD candidates who take time off never finish. And that's what I fear for you. He said, I don't think you're actually as passionate about media literacy as you think you are. I want you to rethink your topic completely and uh, come back and see me in a couple of months. And this is the advice he gave. He's like, go home to the drawer or the box or the file or the whatever where you stuff doodads in like <laughs> these artifacts right like go see what's there and, and excavate and find out what you're really passionate about and i'll tell you sam i left his office livid i was so upset with him like how dare he second guess what my passions are and da 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 da, da. and it took me a couple of weeks and i finally got over myself and i literally <laughs> No, no, it was like all ego. And I, I, I opened up a filing cabinet. I have a, an old fashioned metal filing cabinet, two drawers. And I just kind of like literally went through all the files just and looked at what the titles were. And I came across a file marked M-I-S-C dot for miscellaneous. And we I was like, all have one of those file folders, don't isn't we? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I think we do. I think we do. Um, maybe the new generation has them all on their desktop. Um, but <laughs> us oldies. Um, so I spread open the contents. I looked and I was like, what's going on here? And I found like, um, you know, like stubs from lectures, newspaper clippings, like a whole whack of artifacts. Nothing made sense until I came across one little article about a boy who had gone to school without shoes for a week so that he could relate uh, and empathize with kids who don't have shoes. Mm. And he did a bit of education on global poverty at school. And that's when I realized all of the doodads were all about people trying to create positive change in the world. And I had never, never, never noticed that I was keeping all that stuff and that I was just naturally attracted to change makers. And now, of course, I know the vocabulary around this change making as social entrepreneurs or social um, innovators. So I actually discovered a, a passion that I had, you know, that had been dormant or subconscious, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so when I dove into the, the work about uh, social entrepreneurship, I changed my thesis topic. So to the infinite credit of my, of my thesis supervisor, um, uh, I ended up interviewing social entrepreneurs to understand what is it about them that makes them so different from the rest of the world. We know that there are social problems. Why are they devoting their time and energy and life? to social world like social change and um and that's when i discovered and i distilled it down to this idea of of empathy for others and acting on that empathy that's powerful where was there this moment where you kind of had your your artifacts scattered all over the desk this is the way i'm envisioning it is that you like you know in those movies where you have the pins and the strings and you yeah. see things coming together and you're like oh my god it's been here all along <laughs> did you have that moment of hey, this is the common denominator. How could I have not seen this? Well, I literally have a very strong memory, a very visceral memory of standing above my dining room table when I finally realized what the common denominator was. My hands were on my hips and I got goosebumps and a wave of like, oh my God, how did I not notice this before? And thank you, Michael, for having given me this gift to actually discover this. And so, like, you know, it, it, it was a gift to me to discover what I'm actually naturally 
um, passionate about. And, and I'm, you know, I've spent 10 years studying empathy and I expect to spend the rest of my life understanding how empathy can be deployed for positive change in the world. So um, I wish that for everyone. Oof, that's so powerful. And I think especially with everything that's going on right now, positive change is exactly what we need. And prior to recording, you'd mentioned that humanity is facing a massive collective empathy deficit. But how can we climb out of this hole that we've dug for ourselves? Yeah, that's a huge loaded question. I mean, we know climate change is an issue and most of the people who are going to be impacted, uh, at least initially in the first, let's say, 10 years of climate change are the people that contributed least to it and have the least resources to mitigate it. Um, you know, COVID and the pandemic, everything that that's brought about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter has shone a huge light across the globe around systemic racism. Um, you know, the list goes on and on the inequality between the haves and have nots. The fact that eight men, uh, and they're all men on, on the planet, the eight richest men on the planet have the same combined wealth as do the bottom 3.5 billion people in the bottom half of, of, of wealth holders. Like that, that to me is outrageous and it should offend our sensibilities. Um, so there's a ton of things going on in the world that showcases to me a massive collective empathy deficit. And I think we're at a really beautiful moment in human history where we can look at this 2020 spring and say, okay, what are our personal and collective values and how can we collaborate in different ways to create a better future where there are um, rights and freedoms are spread more equally, uh, opportunities, um, you know, the, the, the resources on the planet uh, are, are not only uh, treated with, with the reverence that they deserve, but that there's a little bit more of a, an equal share um, I think there's so many opportunities to engage in cognitive empathy um, around policymaking. Like, mm -hmm. how can we intentionally design systems, including capitalism, because late stage capitalism, neoliberal capitalism is failing us. Um, so how can we develop systems to support like a thriving world? and thriving humans on the planet. Because, you know, as much as the external realities are pointing to this massive collective empathy deficit, I think also the phenomenon that we're seeing, I mean, I teach at McGill, so I hear from young people, like the levels of anxiety and loneliness, despite a completely connected social media world, you know, it's, you know, the, the, the amount of stories I'm hearing about the cutting and um, a sense of alienation and overwhelm, um, you know, all, all, all the all the addictions that we have, whether it's food or sex or drugs or what have you, like that's showing how, you know, internally we are living in a dysfunctional world as well. So there's a lot of space for us to do good onto the world, but also do good onto our souls. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's an inside job, right? Like it needs to start with us if we're going to have any kind of significant impact on our external whether you know it's our communities our families the world at large like it starts with us absolutely so for those who are listening who are thinking absolutely that we need to create these opportunities we need to get creative and how we're bringing them to the surface and those who are hearing this and thinking 100 percent empathy is at its core we know that it's king but we're not quite sure 
how to tap into it. You have what you call an empathy kind of 101 primer, which explains some of the things we need to know when it comes to empathy. So would you mind sharing those with us? Sure. Well, I won't have time to go through all of them, I don't think, but I, I, I would certainly like to draw attention to a few. Um, the first one I've already talked about at the beginning of our, of our conversation, which is that empathy is composed of these two phenomena, affective and cognitive empathy, and they're both important and we have access to them, um, you know, at all times. Um, it, I, I would also like to, to draw attention to what I call an altruistic emotion continuum, which is like, you know, a lot of language for just sort of like uh, a continuum on one side is pity. And then next to it is sympathy. And next to that is compassion followed by empathy. And those words are often treated as synonyms, but they really don't mean the same thing. They don't have the same etymology and um, they, I see them as very distinct. So on one side is pity on one side of the continuum, and, and pity has a, a power differential that's necessarily embedded in the relationship. When you pity someone, you look down on them. Oh, you poor person, right? And mm. a lot of our philanthropy or even foreign aid can be predicated on a really paternalistic pity paradigm. So I don't love pity. And, you know, sympathy is a notch better. Compassion is a ton better. But compassion is really about affective empathy, like feeling what other people are feeling, right? Having compassion. Where I think empathy and why I, I put it at the opposite side of the continuum, where I feel it has power is that I, my, my working definition of empathy is that it's the innate trait that unites us in our shared humanity mm. without denying lived experience. So when you empathize with someone, you recognize that they share the same common humanity. They're, they deserve the dignity and respect like every other person on the planet. And they may be born to different circumstances and they may have had different lived experiences, but as a human, their value is no different than any other person's value. So empathizing with somebody brings us on that level playing field. And I think that's a really powerful, um, uh, important, like, thing to say about empathy. Um, and, and then when you do social change work in the mindset and in the spirit of empathy, you're doing a lot more listening and you have a lot more humility about what solutions could look like because you're working collaboratively with people who may actually know the problem better than you do. There's a lot of kind of like white savior heropreneurship that happens in the world of social change. And empathy is recognizes that there's there's a need to listen and and to have humility. So that would be an important um, part of my 101. Another one is that um, we're all born with the innate capacity to empathize, which is really exciting. Um, I, I'm I'm not speaking of a few ex uh, exceptions to that rule. Um, you know, psychopaths uh, are an exception, and then there are. Um, atypical ways of empathizing if you're on the autism spectrum. So I'm not talking about those two exceptions, but the general population, we're all born with the capacity to empathize and it grows over time or it gets pruned over time based mm -hmm. on lived experiences. So um, one of the things that I find very um, powerful about our brain and the fact that we have brain plasticity is that we can become more empathic with practice. So just like you go to the gym and you curl 
you, you know, do bicep curls to pump your, your bicep muscle, you actually can become more empathic by thinking more empathic thoughts intentionally and by behaving in empathic ways intentionally until it becomes, um, you know, very second nature mm -hmm. and our brain plasticity allows that to happen. So we can, that, that, I find that very hopeful that we can all become more empathic. Absolutely. I think the last thing that I would probably want to share um, in my 101 is that uh, it's, it's something that was taught to me um, or offered to me by a woman who studied um, art. She's an, uh, she has a PhD in art history and she focused on Islamic art. She's from Turkey originally. She lives in DC now. And I interviewed her for my book and asked her, what was it about Islamic art that got you onto the empathy thing? And she said, oh, I've got a great story for you. So I, I'm happy to share that story that she told me. And that is the, the most basic form, I'm talking about geometry, is the connection between two dots by a line. And then she said, if you connect three dots, that becomes a triangle, and four dots becomes a square or rectangle, depending on the length of the lines. And you can connect a bunch of dots that are in like no known shape, like no named shape. Mm -hmm. But what she said, what's interesting about all geometric shapes, regardless of what they look like, when you spread them out to their natural extremity, like all the way out, they lose the sharp angles and they all become a circle. Okay, mm -hmm. when you stretch them out, imagine like a elastic band. And she said, so imagine every person on the planet is taking up a spot on the circumference of the circle. And she said, you know, a circle can have an infinite number of dots. So, you know, there are as many, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet now, but we're growing to 8 billion and 9 billion. So like that circle circumference can encompass us all. She said, so every person who's on that circumference of the circle has a slightly different perspective to the center, to the epicenter. So if you're like one dot next to each other, you, you kind of see things similarly, but not exactly. And then if you're further apart, you see things really differently. And if you're on the opposite side of the circle, you see things radically differently. Yet, so we all have different perspectives vis-a-vis -vis the center, but we're all equidistant to center. And so on a sort of spiritual level, if we think of the center as, you know, what gave life creation, if you want to call it God, earth, uh, you know, whatever word you want to attribute to the source, we are all equidistant to that. And yet we are all living that experience differently. And I find that such a powerful metaphor for what empathy is mm. in the world. Absolutely. I got goosebumps. I love those moments where the perspective shifts, the way you look at something shifts and the story, especially because it is, is told in story format. I mean, there's a different, it resonates differently when it's shared through someone's lived experiences as opposed to, you know, just a textbook kind of definition. I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you're an expert in this area and, you know, presumably are a step further than kind of the 101 empathy level. What's it like for you as you continually expand your ability to empathize. Do you ever waver from what it is that you teach and, and really what you've learned? Well, I definitely know that while I was doing my PhD and studying empathy, I did a, a lot of experiments, you know, trying to behave differently to see how that would work out. And over time, um, I enjoyed being more empathic. 
uh, I became more empathic. I started to, to really see how my behavior changed. Um, and I, I've become a happier person. Like I've become a kinder person as a result of the experiments that I've, I've undertaken. And I think, you know, what I struggle with now is that there's no perfection around being an empathic person because mm. we are complicated human beings. So I, um, you know, I can be perfectly empathic in one moment and then also really screw it up in another moment. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and, and not live up to my own expectations of what, uh, what a good empathic person might do. And I think that that's, um, we have to give ourselves permission to be human too. And as much as possible, course correct. So whether that's offering an apology or just doing it differently the next time. I mean, I certainly do worry also, I have a daughter who's four and um, I, I want to model empathic behavior so that I'm not teaching her to be empathic but through words, but that she becomes more empathic through having seen it in practice. So I'm conscious of that. I'm conscious of the way I speak to her, discipline her, what we talk about, um, the stories I, I, you know, the, the extra kind of editorial comments I could make where I'm intentionally kind of bringing up some kind of empathy angle without using the word empathy because she would, she, she would hate the word empathy if I mentioned it too often, you know, so I have to be careful about that. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it beautifully ties into what you were saying in the beginning is that it, it can really be and should be this intentional activity until it becomes second nature, until we develop those habits. This is how we improve and expand. So I think we've kind of come full circle there, which is really nice. So before we wrap up, what is the one thing we can do today? You know, you mentioned kind of course correction and being able to recognize, okay, this is, you know, maybe not exactly how I wanted to handle it. And so recognizing we have the power, what's one thing, even right after this episode that we can do to take empathic action or to kind of course correct if there's something that happened in our day where we realize "Mm, I could have dealt with that a little better. Well, thank you for asking. And again, I'll turn to uh, someone that taught me this, uh, not directly, but through a book. Sharon Salzberg uh, is a mindfulness practitioner. And there's a practice that she talks about where we can grow our compassion and empathy for others. And it takes about 10 minutes to do. So you find a quiet place and you spend the first two minutes thinking about your loved ones. You just think about the people you love the most, your besties, the people that you want to spend your time with that you'd, you know, you'd, you'd put your life ahead of your life ahead of theirs, you know, to save them or something, just people that you love the most and, and you send them good loving wishes and you just keep focusing on them like one at a time, or you picture them in like a family photograph, doesn't matter. And so you send those guys like a lot of love and compassion and empathy. And then you take a few breaths and you take another two minutes and you think about the friends that you don't see often enough, the acquaintances you want to get to know better. And you, you, and that could include people um, that you haven't seen in five years that you just want to be reminded of how special they are. And you send them love and you send them compassion, you send them empathy, whatever they're up against in life. And so they're not your immediate circle of your lover, you know, you're most intimate, but you care about them quite a bit nonetheless. 
And after that two minutes, you, you recalibrate again, take a couple of deep breaths, and then you send out two minutes of love, compassion, and empathy to people that you don't know at all, but you know are there. The person that put your mail in your mailbox, the person that stacked the boxes of crackers at your grocery store, somebody who's like a farmer in Uruguay. Uh, you know, you just send out loving kindness, compassion, empathy to these strangers and just let, let that, you know, good resonance go. And then in the final two minutes, you pay attention to people that you do not like or do not understand who have hurt you in the abstract or in reality. So that could be police officers that you're upset with, um, or it could be the lawmakers that are not addressing it, or the people who vote for the party that you don't support, or it could be the person that said something to you that was judgmental. So it could be real or it could be in the abstract, and you just send them love and empathy and compassion. And you make that a practice, and you try to do that as often as you can. It could be in the shower while you're washing your hair. It could be on a run. It could be before you go to sleep. But that practice gives you opportunities to flex your empathy muscle. And the more often you do it, the more often it'll be accessible to you in a moment that's triggering and that you'll behave differently as a result. Oh, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Sharon Salzberg. I didn't make that one up, but uh, check out her book. I love it. So speaking of books, you've got one coming out. What can we look forward to? Where can we find it? Give us the details. Well, thanks so much for having me again, Samantha. This was a great conversation. I, I love talking about empathy. Thanks for the opportunity. My website is the go-to place. Um, so www.anitanovak.com. You can pre-order the book. Yeah, the book is basically going to look at the, the crisis that we're in, the multiple crises, the ways that we can um, engage in empathic action. And how can people follow you? I mean, I'm sure all your information is on your website, but are you active on any social platforms where we, people can kind of get the latest on what's going on in, with your life and with your work? Instagram, Facebook, uh, I have a YouTube channel, Anita Novak. So there's a lot of different uh, social media handles that they can follow and would love to, to, to have them join the community. Perfect. I will be sure to drop those in the show notes. Anita, thank you so much once again for sharing your expertise with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Samantha. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.